Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Miriana Svetkovich, FRCA, about the article, Timing of Death in Children Referred for Intensive Care with Severe Sepsis, Implications for Interventional Studies, published in the June 2015 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Svekovich works as a clinical fellow at the Children's Acute Transport Service at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London and a consultant intensivist in anesthesia at Leicester Hospital. Welcome and thank you for being here today, Mariana. Thank you very much. Would you give us some background to your study? What led you to do this study? So basically, as a part of a retrieval team, the daily witnessing the challenges local hospitals are presented with when uh, treating children with sepsis. So we observed that a significant proportion of children die even before reaching local intensive care units or even before retrieval teams reach to the local hospital. So that made us wonder whether estimates of the pediatric septic deaths are actually underestimated in the whole world, and that was the basis for our study. So you made reference in your paper to a survivorship bias in terms of severe sepsis trials in that, you know, these children who have very early deaths don't get entered into trials. How can this survivorship bias affect our understanding of these trials? So survivorship bias is the logical error where the people who actually or children who actually didn't survive are excluded from the trials. So that means that all our beliefs regarding sepsis can be optimistically estimated, which means that sepsis actually can have a worse impact on survival than we thought. Tell us about your transport system, the Children's Acute Transport Service. Yeah, so Children Acute Transport Service, called CATS in London, is a regional intensive care retrieval service which is based in London. We actually get referrals from 50 district hospitals and we have around 2,000 referrals annually. We represent 10% of all referrals around the country and we retrieve around 5% of all the children for PICU treatment in UK. So we have children who are referred to us uh, both for general and specialist case mix. That means that our sample is actually likely to be generalizable for the wider United Kingdom, not only for the regional. What did you do in this study? So in a particular study, we decided to review all the referrals to CATS between generally 2005 and December 2011. So we decided to take as many referrals as possible as we could record to get uh, decent numbers. So we have looked at uh, referrals of newborns uh, until 16 years of age with working diagnosis of sepsis, severe sepsis, meningococcal sepsis, sepsis or septic shock. And then this diagnosis was suspected or even proven by referring team and our CATS consultants were supported with the diagnosis at that time. The referring hospitals would provide us with laboratory and clinical signs and clinical signs of sepsis or eventually organ failure and they would refer the kids needed ICU treatment. So what did you do 
with the information that you gathered from the referral of the sepsis children? What were your outcomes you were looking at and what did you find? So if you're asking about the aim of our study, the aim of our study was to determine the timing of death in children which were referred for intensive care with severe sepsis and then compare outcomes of previously healthy children and children with significant comorbidities. So that was our basic aim. So that data which were collected were time of referral, age, gender, all the comorbidities, infectious organisms which we divided in between meningococcal sepsis and other sepsis. And then we have collected severity of illness using the pediatric index of mortality or PIM score. And the PIM score was the score in patients who are retrieved by the CAT scheme, which means that the CAT scheme did have a face-to-face contact with the patient. And then PIM score was obtained. So tell us what you found about the timing of death in children who were referred to you. So during this period, we found that we have had uh, 703 patients who fulfilled our criteria, which is actually only 5% of our referrals. And then we have looked in one-year survival data, and those data were available in around 630 patients, which means around 90% of all the patients who fulfilled the, the criteria. And then these children, these 630 children, actually formed our study population. And after that, we estimated the timing of death. And then we found that around 14% of those children did have a significant prior comorbidity, which was then divided in a percentage of, for example, cardiac diseases, immunodeficiencies, prematurity, neurology diseases, chromosomal diseases, gastrointestinal diseases, and so on. And then we actually found that all in total, one-year survival or deaths, 130 children actually died during the one year of our follow-up. So out of those 130 children, 34 children died even before getting to the local PICU, which makes around 21% of all deaths, which we thought was a big number. And then we found out that in the terms of children who are dying in the first 24 hours, there were no difference in between children with or without comorbidities which is quite interesting, actually, that comorbidity doesn't have an impact on the acute risk of death. After that, we found out that the children who are dying later on are likely to have different comorbidities. And uh, it could be that those children with severe comorbidities are actually dying of their primary disease or actually dying with sepsis, not uh, because of sepsis. So that was a quite interesting finding. How many of the children who died, the 130 or so, died within the first 24 hours? The first 24 hours, we did have 71 deaths, which means 34 dies even before, and then additional patients are dying in ICU of sepsis. And those very early deaths are the ones that it may be 
most difficult to influence their outcome, or I guess alternatively, we could address our early approach to sepsis to try to alter that since a little bit more than half of your children died very early. Yeah, that was our conclusion as well, that although we are trying to follow the treatment for recommended treatment for the sepsis, we are actually not able to do it, especially if the sepsis is not recognized by the families or by the local hospitals, then the children do not have good outcome. How common was meningococcemia in your patient population? So meningococcal sepsis is not so common, but obviously in our study, around half of the patients are referred as meningococcal sepsis. So the data for meningococcal sepsis in UK actually getting better, which means that our less children are getting meningococcal sepsis with the time which means either we are better to recognize it, better to treat it, or we are better to give a prophylactic treatment for meningococcal sepsis. Meningococcal sepsis is quite a bit less common, at least in most parts of the United States. And my sense is that that is very frequently a a fulminant sepsis, more so than some other organisms. Do you think your high rate of meningococcal sepsis could have been a factor in the, it seems to me, 50% of the children dying so rapidly? Do you think that could be reflected at least in part because of the organism? Yes, it could be definitely, but that we need to look more into. We can't conclude that definitely from, from our study, but yeah, it could have an impact. I have seen a fair amount of work on meningococcal sepsis out of the UK, and as you alluded to, there's been a great deal of work to improve the early recognition and the early treatment with some improvement in outcomes. Were you able to look over time at the deaths from sepsis, uh, early deaths from sepsis over the six-year period that you looked at? Uh, Whether that was meningococcal or not. Yeah, and whether there was any change in the frequency of meningococcal sepsis over that time. So there was no change in the meningococcal sepsis rates during that time, although we have had maybe a a non-significant decrease in meningococcal sepsis if we compare the first three years with the next four years. But we can't, as I said, we can't conclude so much out of this study particularly about that subject. It's interesting that that the previously healthy children who died, I believe two-thirds of them died in the first 24 hours. So if you can get a previously normal child through the first 24 hours, they have a much better longer-term outcome than those children with comorbidities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was our conclusion as well. And it's very interesting one, that early deaths are not actually influenced by comorbidities of the children. That is an interesting finding. What are the implications for your study for our care of children with severe sepsis and for future clinical trials? How do we take this data and apply it to what we do now and how we do trials looking at severe sepsis and septic shock in children in the future? So we have had two main implications of our study. The first one is that we are supporting the vital importance of the earlier stages of care as it has been described in surviving sepsis campaigns, meaning that rapid antibiotic therapy and fluid resuscitation, the basic thing treating the septic children. 
and then we will try to implicate that all the children who are actually dying even before coming into PICU or the children who are excluded from the studies, uh, from most of the septic studies, are actually the children who are in the highest risk of death. So those children should definitely be included in the standard septic studies as well. And it should be looked into how many of the children are dying prior to even starting a septic treatment on ICU. That raises the challenge of getting a critically ill child enrolled rapidly into a clinical trial and perhaps some discussion about the possibility of trials without initial informed consent, but after the fact, some of the emergency medicine and cardiac arrest trials are without initial informed consent, and that may be important for some of the sepsis, early sepsis studies as well. Yeah, definitely. We can move our septic studies from PICU to the local hospitals, A&Es, and then try to take it from there rather than starting the study on PICU. That would be an interesting study to do, actually, whether we can make a difference if we uh, improve the treatment of the local hospitals or help them do it, which means that all the retrieval teams would have a big impact of helping the local hospitals dealing with the septic children, but as well trying to improve the moment of recognizing of the sepsis, which many of the local hospitals actually have troubles with, probably because most of the local hospitals are adult hospitals. It's very frequently, at at least in UK, that children are taken to the nearest hospital if they are unwell, and then adult treating doctors are not able to treat the children in the same way as in the pediatric hospital. So that could be one of the research points in the next future studies. That same issue certainly occurs in the United States. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. We have been talking today with Dr. Mirjana Svetkovic from Great Ormond Street Hospital in London about the article, Timing of Death in Children Referred for Intensive Care with Severe Sepsis, Implications for Interventional Studies, published in the June 2015 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org slash congress to register and for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.